Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. Last month, the Progressive Economics 2022 conference, a one-day festival of transformative economic thinking, took place at the University of Greenwich. In a world battered by crises, facing environmental collapse, PEF brought together leading thinkers from across the progressive movement to present the arguments and solutions we need to build a radically better economy. Speakers included Gargi Bhattacharya, Aram Bananav, Francesca Breer, James Meadway, Kate Pickett, John McDonnell MP and David Edgerton, amongst many others. PTO was pleased to be an official media partner of Progressive Economics 2022 and in the coming weeks we'll be posting some of the excellent panel discussions that took place at the event. First up is a session on the cost of living crisis. In the panel discussion, James Meadway, Susan Newman and Rupert Russell discussed the causes of price rises, the disastrous effects of conventional policy responses and what the real solutions are to high inflation. This is Progressive Economy Forum. This is a recording of the How to End the Cost of Living Crisis panel from Progressive Economics 2022, a festival for the future of economics. The astonishing rise in prices we're currently experiencing is causing misery, and most forecasters expect inflation to worsen. But mainstream solutions seem to involve either causing a recession or cutting wages. Where are the price rises coming from? And what are the real solutions to high inflation? Rupert Russell is a writer, filmmaker, and the author of Price Wars, How Chaotic Markets Are Creating a Chaotic World. He has filmed in 20 countries and made two award-winning documentaries. He has a PhD in sociology from Harvard and has published in The Guardian, The Independent, Time, among others. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for hosting us. Um, as we know from the news, not only are we in a uh, cost of living crisis, but we also have uh, daily headlines on sort of various commodity uh, price movements. One day, oil's up $30 a barrel. Next day, it's down 10 There were also uh, scary headlines about uh, rising food prices or rather historically high food prices. We haven't seen these for over a decade and before that, uh, 40 years. Um, We're also seeing how these headlines connected to how this is being impacted by the war in Ukraine, the supply chain crisis, climate change, what have you. So we're really in a kind of another sort of commodity price super shock that really started last year, but it's really sort of accelerated with the war. Now, with these price, uh, with sort of uh, chaotic price movements, we also get a chaotic world. And I just uh, fortuitously managed to publish a book on this in January that was really looking at the last 10, 10, years of, sorry, 10 years of price shocks. And we're in, if you like, a third one. There was one in... 2008, another one in 2011, and there was also an oil bubble that lasted from 2011 to 2014, and now we're in the 21-22. These are often called super cycles by the traders and, and, and by the press, and every time there is one of these, we have enormous disruptions around the world. And I'm just going to focus on three different price disruptions today, food, oil, housing, and they're all actually, they're all actually connected. 
So already this year, we've seen uh, enormous social turmoil, in particular Sri Lanka, that's been grabbing the headlines. But we've also seen uh, food price pr protests happening in a list here, Argentina, Chile, Cyprus, Greece, Indonesia, Iraq, Iran, Kenya, Lebanon, Peru, Sudan, and Tunisia. Now, this is something that we should expect. As you can see from this graph, we had this in the last time food, food prices were high. In 2008, this is what the UN called the global food crisis. And then 2011, uh, we had the out to the Arab Spring, but of course, the food, food protests were not just limited to the Arab Spring, although they were uh, concentrated in there. If we could have the next slide. This is Syria, 2011, and I think this is an important point that is making an important point that is missed when we talk about why food price spikes produce uh, protests. Um, we tend to think of it in terms of absolute terms, in terms of hunger, poverty, real human suffering. But it's important to note that in the Middle East and other kind of uh, post-colonial countries, bread is both uh, sustenance and symbolic, right? So in the Middle East, it's often called, uh, there's a sort of so-called democracy of bread instead of having the, the democracy of the vote. It's also part of what's also called an authoritarian bargain whereby regimes, although they're autocratic, have a kind of Covert, sorry, covert is my word, a kind of implicit agreement with the people that, you know, you, you let us rule, live in our, in our palaces, and in return we're going to have to get guarantees on a standard of living. Now, when this social contract is sort of broken, when food prices go really high and the state isn't able to effectively subsidize them, as is normally the case in places uh, like Egypt, Syria, Tunisia, and so forth, um, bread is held up as a, as, as a symbol, not just a pie red crop prices, but also as a breaking of this social contract. You have the next slide as well. And then we can see this quite clearly. This is Tunisia, uh, where literally sort of bread was sort of weaponized. And this picture went viral on, on Facebook at the time. So here we can see that the prices uh, have their political power through their dual function, sustenance and, and symbolic. Now, it's important to remember that the Arab Spring Although at the time, many of us were very hopeful about this being a new chapter for the Middle East turned into an absolute nightmare. Let's have the next slide. Um, this is uh, Iraq, Mosul. I went there in 2018 to kind of see for myself just how, just how bad this had gotten. And essentially what had happened was these Arab Spring protests in Libya, Syria, and Yemen had by uh, 2014 turned into not only horrendous civil wars, but also they had spilled out over into the neighboring countries such, such, such as Iraq. And this building just, just sort of explained its significance is where, before it was bombed uh, during the so-called liberation, 2015 or so, uh, sorry, late, late 2016, I think it was, they, um, <laughs> they uh, threw gay people off the top of that at noon. Um, and sorry, I should add those people who were accused of being gay. So this was actually a kind of execution site um, this is the absolute, of course, nightmare apocalypse. And so you can kind of see from the previous slides how maybe what it started was sort of, uh, you know, protests against corrupt authoritarian regimes started by an international price spike had in fact began an avalanche, a cascade of crises that unfortunately had unlocked a kind of Pandora's box of monsters of which this is, this is, this, this is sort of, you know, in my opinion at least, the kind of apex of, of monstrosity. We have the next slide. 
Why did this happen? I'll touch on this a little bit. Susan James is going to expand some more on this, but it's very striking that during the so-called uh, global food crisis and then the Arab Spring, although food prices were very, very high, food production has steadily risen every single year, right? The volatility that we see in prices was not reflected in the volatility of supply. In fact, in each one of these years, the world had never produced so much food. So something was going seriously wrong in the social organization of the food system, and that food system is the international commodity markets. Now, right now we're seeing another food price spike, and just like then, there were many stories at the time about why this was so plausible. You could hear stories about climate change. In 2010, there were wildfires raging across Russia, right? These were actually in local news broadcasts in the United States. There was a general feeling that the Malthusian nightmare, those kinds of disaster movies like The Day After Tomorrow, right? It was very popular during the 2000s. That kind of climate nightmare had actually arrived. Whereas in reality, these stories, although they eventually were fed into market prices, they didn't necessarily reflect the reality. Right now, we have similar fears, not just of uh, ports being blocked, ships, uh, cargo ships unable to leave Ukraine and Russia full of uh, wheat, but also the high spike in fertilizer prices, which is creating fears around future, um, future food, food production. So again, we're in another kind of narrative uh, tsunami of scarcity. The agricultural economists are kind of keen to point out to us at the moment that there is no need for a caloric shortfall. The vast majority of uh, wheat and food is produced inside uh, domestic economies. Actually, a very small percentage of it is, 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 is traded at all. That's not to say there's obviously nothing to worry about, but it should also be mentioned that there's all kinds of speculative frenzies going on now, just as there was in these years. We're seeing retail investors pile into agricultural futures through ETFs. We're seeing institutional investors parking money in commodity futures as an inflation hedge to pr protect massive portfolios from the threat of inflation. So unfortunately, we're seeing the same kind of financial chaos exacerbate a real-world crisis and spread it, spread it across the world to many vulnerable places, which will in turn spread real-world suffering um, far from Ukraine to Africa, Latin America, Asia, um, and so forth. Now let's talk about uh, gas prices. Now, yes, to the next slide, thanks. Now, a lot of mega's gas prices, or petrol prices, we call them here, especially in the United States. Um, Macron's presidency in 2019 was rocked by the Julie June protests, and this sent a kind of chill down the spine of uh, policymakers across the West not to touch gas prices for climate or other reasons. Um, and this narrative has also taken hold in the United States. It's sort of conventional wisdom that, you know, presidential fortunes go up and down with the gas prices. So I think what's telling about this is that we can see actually, at least in the current movement, Joe Biden's approval rating was already declining before the massive spike in gas prices. But I think this kind of reinforces the point I was making earlier, that these prices really have a kind of symbolic value. Now that we can see it's not so much that the high gas prices cause the drop in by Biden's approval ratings, but they've instead, I think, become a kind of symbol of his malaise, right? We had this in the 1970s as well. 1970s, United States, you actually had a lot of growth, especially in Carter's presidency. But the high gas prices kind of created this kind of dark shadow over it. They had this 
outsized political importance that people look to. And I think this is important when we compare it to other prices we could be looking at, such as wages. Right? And one of the reasons, perhaps, that wages don't quite have the same sort of visibility or cultural importance that things like gas, that gas prices do. Like, you drive around, you see these prices, even for people who don't follow the news or read newspapers or even go on Facebook to read whatever they're pumping out these days, you can still see, see these prices kind of adorning urban landscapes and even rural ones as well. So we've got gas prices, and the third one I'll talk about is housing. So look at the next one. So house, house prices also have enormous uh, importance for social contracts in the West. So I mentioned about bread prices being important for social contracts in the Middle East and other post-colonial societies. House prices and gas prices have outsized um, importance in the, in the West. And one of the reasons advocated by the uh, political scientist Ben Ansell at the University of Oxford is that house prices have become a kind of nest egg in the era of neoliberalism, the gutting of the social welfare state, as people are losing kind of state source of security, they're looking to private source of security. Rising house prices has kind of provided that. And for people who are locked out of what they perceive to be rising house prices, right, those are people who maybe don't own their own homes, those are people who maybe do, 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 do own their own homes, but they're in neighborhoods where their prices are not, are not rising. They sort of see themselves as locked out of the rising prosperity. And this has a, a similar effect of being, um, of, of, of the social contract be, being broken, right? That we're going in the wrong direction. And this is a pretty striking graph, right? Showing that really the Brexit is, is extremely highly, highly, I can't speak today. Brexit is extremely highly correlated with, um, with house prices, as, as you can see. And his explanation is, is that Brexit was really, as we know, a vote for change, a vote to get to the establishment, and that it was sort of compounded with that. Here with uh, David, David Adler did some uh, similar research in the United States with Trump, and they found a very similar effect when you looked at people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2012, switching, sorry, Barack Obama in 2012, switching to Trump in 2016. Again, it was sort of predicted by a very kind of granular analysis of house prices. Think of Detroit, right? That was a classic swing state. Michigan, it was for Obama, it switched to Trump. What does Detroit look like? It looks like the Walking Dead when you made it. You've got houses that can't be given away, boarded up. It's not just the price, Ansel tells me, it's also the kind of, again, it's the visual symbolic nature of it. So here we have, so I'm trying to sort of emphasize three, three prices that are having outsized impacts. Now, all of these are tied to international political economy, right? House prices are linked to financial flows, commodity prices obviously set uh, in, in, in internationally. And I just want to say two small points before handing it over, and I'll talk uh, more about the econo economics of this. But I'd like to say just two, two things about this. One is that we already have plenty of price interventions, right? So the United States, for example, you have food stamps. Here we have universal credit, we have agricultural sub subsidies, we have subsidies to fossil fuel, fuel companies. There's already plenty of market interventions, and yet the idea of price stabilization and so forth is kind of seen as something new, anachronistic, a kind of throwback to the 1970s of queues and shortages and long lines. And in fact, the current interventions that we have by, by the state are kind of rendered in, in, invisible. And I think what these social movements and our current politics is showing us is that we need to address what's currently there and 
render it visible and talk about it in debate. Right, we have these interventions. Who are they for? Who, who, who benefits? The second part of this is that this international financial structure that's governing many of these prices runs through London, right? So London, United States, have New York, have ultimately privileged positions in international political economy. You may have seen headlines of the London Metal Exchange going totally haywire over nickel prices and having to be closed down. Closed down. That's because London has long been the most deregulated uh, 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 home of finance. And actually it was in 1997, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown deregulated the city, which prompted Greenspan and Larry Summers to have more important these more far-reaching deregulations in the United States. So the United Kingdom has been a key, a key uh, home for volatile finance, but it's also been a key home for recycling petrodollars. Right? So when you have high, high oil prices, the, those, oil, those oil revenues get recycled in, into financial assets. Many of which are London houses, like around us today in Greenwich and the, the skyscrapers, the Shard and so forth, right? And of course, where does this all run through? It runs through tax havens. I'm sure there's other talks on tax havens, I won't touch on that. But it's only to say, my point is only to say that London and the UK is by no means a kind of passive recipient of international political economy. We are right here, a kind of key driver of it. And right now, it's sort of scrambling, scrambling our politics. And that is sort of how chaotic markets have been delivering a chaotic world. Susan Newman is a professor and head of economics at the Open University. She is an activist member of the People's Assembly and a member of Reteaching Economics. Um, thanks for the invite. It's great to be here. Um, I sort of... Yeah, it's a great introduction by Rupert. It really made me think a bit. And I sort of think my intervention here is really going to try and fill in a few of those gaps from an economics perspective. And also I'd like to draw our attention on the impact of this cost of living crisis on the global south. So this is, not, this is a global issue, not one faced purely in this country or even uh, in the global north. So here is a, this is just from 2003. So let's focus on the blue line at the moment, which is the ore commodity price index it tells us the monthly sort of weighted average price of commodities primary commodities these are um, and we can see quite a lot of variation and fluctuation in there and if we were to take that data further back we would see something very similar you know these what we what Rupert's uh, discussed as uh, super cycles but also lots of volatility in between and another observation which I haven't got in this graph is a longer term decline in real prices of these commodities until 2000. And, um, and I'll, I'll discuss why that is. And that's really about China and China's demand for industrial inputs that changed the nature of commodity prices. But I just sort of want to, to, to go back in, in time really and say something about commodities and uh, their volatility. It's not a new thing. Commodity price volatility has been a major issue um, in economics for, you know, since, since we've had global markets, really. And, uh, you know, historically, um, these markets are very susceptible to supply-side shocks, particularly in agriculture, such as weather-related shocks. And, in fact, commodity futures markets themselves were developed in the first instance as a way to standardise forward contracts between buyers and sellers of commodities. This was to help mitigate price risks, right? So you lock in a price prior to harvest in order for everyone to sort of know what they're going to be getting and to be able to make plans for the future. This means that these are sites of speculation. These types of markets are sites of speculation has 
existed as long as these markets have existed. Um, you know, we can, we can go back to the boom and bust cycles of the tulip mania, for example, in the first half of the 17th century. Um, and there and have been lots of other forms of price risk management, uh, such as storage um, by, by uh, owners of commodities that have been utilised for speculative purposes. So there's been all the speculation, but previously the motive was really very much around cornering and controlling the market. So we look at pricing models in the past, they were very much around commodity storage models and speculation that existed in those. So how did, how did these sort of cycles within an, a year, uh, how are they affected by the behaviours of traders particularly? But um, I would argue that, no, I think Rupert's also argued that that type of speculation has changed quite some, uh, uh, quite some and I'll, I'll expand on that in a bit. But that's largely because of a restructuring of the global economy and the increasing importance of assets, asset price inflation, and the role of finance and financial markets to perpetuate and redistribute, redistribute and concentrate that wealth. Okay, so uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. But just going back to this uh, chart again, we'll see that the pandemic hit supplies very seriously, and that was a real shock, right? There was a real supply shock that took place at the early stages of the pandemic as countries locked down and disrupt, disrupted supply chains. So, and it was more expensive to ship things around the world, right? So, but one of the big issues has also been the fragmentation of production as well. So the rise of global value chains that have existed and how that adds to the kind of, the impact, the sort of multiplicative impact of fuel price rises. So I'll come back to that in a minute. So if we look at these three charts, what I've got here is the overall price index in blue, the food price index in orange, and in gray, the fuel price index. And uh, you should be able to see, just because the fuel price index is much higher, that it's what's driving overall price increases. Um, and it does this both directly and indirectly. So petroleum, we know, is a major input into production of other commodities and other goods. Uh, an example here is fertilizer. And many, many countries around the world are dependent upon world markets for access to fertilizers. Um, a second area, an indirect uh, link between, as I mentioned already, is the reorganization of production across the globe as part of the latest phase of globalization since the 1990s. So this is the fragmentation of production along so-called global value chains. And this uh, leads to greater demand for transport and logistics and hence fuel. So price increases in fuel have a multiplicative effect on prices across almost all products. And a final aspect, which I did, oh, hang on. I did actually want to go to the next slide, sorry. Yeah, that's fine. So this is the global value chains um, sort of uh, from the World Development Report showing the rise of global value chains since the 70s and particularly accelerating in the 19, from 1990 onwards. And what we saw is this massive proliferation of global value chains seeking out lower cost suppliers around the world, okay? So the main motivation for this kind of offshoring and outsourcing was cost. And that cost was largely about squeezing suppliers, um, offshoring both risk as well of production to low-cost suppliers, low-wage suppliers. And, and there's a lot of work to show how this has become an architecture for unequal exchange. So greater rates of exploitation at the beginning ends of the production of the chain and, and a kind of a conduit and architecture for the siphoning of surplus towards the, the global north via these chains. 
Um, but and these were these, you know, due to uh, communication technology and liberalisation, these have really proliferated. But we do see there's a slowdown, particularly after the uh, financial crisis of 2008. Nine, as corporations found that these were largely intractable, you can't just like kind of, kind of uh, spread your production across multiple multiple sites with countries bidding against each other for low cost. These become very, very intractable. So we've seen a sort of consolidation of these and a slowing down of their development. But they're still very significant. They're still very, very significant in terms of global trade and how we get the consumption products that we, we consume. Um, I can do the next slide, thanks. And in terms of financialization, here is a, a, a chart for crude oil. So this is the uh, West Texas intermediate crude oil sold on the New York ex trade on the New York Exchange. And what we're showing here is open interest, which is the overall activity on these ex this exchange. So who's who's uh, trading, how many people are trading. And this has been uh, separated out into different types of traders. So commercial traders are the people that you would expect to be trading in oil futures, right? Those are oil companies, okay? And, and those who uh, demand oil, that use oil as a large in, a major input. But we see other forms of financial investors increasing their share, and most notably swap dealers and managed money. So managed money here, we're talking about things like asset management firms. So, um, so financial interest in commodities um, is linked to, um, in, in broader commodities, sorry, let me go back on this. Um, I think Rupert already mentioned a bit about financialization, and it's usually referred to as a role, increasing role of financial speculators, hedge funds, institutional investors, and, the, and, and also the development of new financial instruments linked to commodity prices, such as exchange-traded funds. So these are index funds, for example, commodity index funds, for example. And, uh, and what this has done is that uh, financial interest in commodities is linked in the first place to a few on other commodities, such as agri-food, metals and minerals, and other industrial inputs, because they've become a really important asset class in portfolio investment as an inflation hedge. So this idea that if you're expecting higher prices, you should diversify your portfolio more into uh, asset classes that are likely also to increase in price with, as they underpin inflation, and it's very easy to see how that would become a self-fulfilling situation. So this amplification of, of price increases that come out of this, this, uh, this process. Um, but also overall financialized accumulation and the rising role of asset managers has become really, really key in, in the global economy. Um, asset management firms issue many of these exchange-traded funds. Um, the investment vehicles that wealthy individuals use and corporations, insurance and, and uh, pension companies. I should also go back and say it's not just wealthy individuals. Anyone who has a private pension or any kind of insurance, you know, private insurance is linked to these, uh, these wealth management firms, right? So there's an absolute connection between social provisioning today and, and this process of wealth accumulation. But just a few statistics. The big three asset management firms, uh, these are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. They manage over 20 trillion assets, and they control 80% of the market for exchange-traded funds, right? So these are very, very powerful uh, funds with, with multiple interests that are tied also into our own interests in the provision for our old age, etc. 
So these trade, and also, they, they also got interested in, I mean, this morning I was in the session on the care economy, they also have large equity stakes in various types of uh, social provisioning and, and care consortia. And what these trading practices have done is that they've really tied together the price behavior of diverse group of commodities, right? So we see all these commodity prices moving together much more, even if they have very different and divergent supply and demand uh, re relations. And that has very serious implications for commodity-dependent low-income economies in the global south. So what, what they've done, so they've, they've tied these prices together of different types of commodities, and they've exacerbated price cycles in commodities. And I started looking at these sorts of questions about, I can't remember, around 2005-06 when I started my PhD. And one of the questions I had to myself was, why don't the trading companies care then? Surely this would disrupt you know, the trading this kind of volatility would disrupt the trading of, of, of these of producers and sellers and et cetera. But they don't because actually futures markets have become real major reference prices for trading. They've become really important things. So, produce, so trading companies, these large international trading companies which are highly concentrated, we have a handful of those controlling the vast majority of global trade in, in different commodity types. And uh, they, they're, in it, they're in the same game. So they can benefit as much, and in, increasingly, many of them are, are, are turning to finance as an additional income stream to the standard trade. Um, but producers and consumers do suffer from this. And uh, so whilst I think Rupert showed that the price food shortage in aggregate is fictitious, um, these price movements have very real implications on the ground, particularly in low-income developing countries. Can I just ask how much time I've got? Oh, right. Okay, great. All right, fantastic. So I'm going to move on now to... I've got no slides left, I think that's it. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move on now to have a look at... I want to look at the... Turn our attention to the global, so-called global south and the, how, how this uh, situation is, is unravelling in the global south. And actually, much of these issues predate both the pandemic and the current... Uh, inflationary price pressures. But if we just some headline figures, ActionAid had a report out, I think, last week that showed that 13 countries across Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America, Middle East, um, now have a 50, on average, have seen a 50% rise in average cost of bread and pasta, 63% rise in the cost of petrol, um, and also an 83% rise in the price of fertilizer. So this is much, much greater than the sorts of figures that we're seeing for the UK and Europe at the moment. And of course, in the first instance, this is going to hit in terms of hunger and starvation. Um, so there's been a food crisis for a long time in sub-Saharan Africa. This, pre, uh, this predates COVID, and it is very much based on the fact that the world food system is unable to deliver adequate nutrition to large sections of the global population. So this food system is not about a lack of food, but a lack of availability uh, and the right types of food to the majority of the population. So, uh, and this is largely due to the sort of profit-centered nature of this, which will lead to either delivering too few calories, too few macro micronutrients, or too many calories in the, in the form of processed foods and the associated obesity and non-communicable diseases with that. So COVID, so the, we already had a very serious situation, 
as well as you know sort of climate change imp uh, change impacted production um, production um, shocks, as well as conflict in a number of countries across Sub-Saharan Africa. And COVID, of course, disrupted these supply chains that were bringing food to people and the livelihoods that allowed them to access food and ensure nutrition. And as I already mentioned, many of these countries were already uh, at high risk of hunger and starvation, which has been further exacerbated um, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as many of these countries were reliant upon imports of staples from Russia and Ukraine. So this is a further dimension uh, affecting the availability of and the price of staples and edible oil as well. So, so this, this has quite serious implications in terms of popular uprising, um, and we've seen this already in Sri Lanka with, uh, in the last week with the deposing of the prime minister there. I'm going to move on to connect the story of Sri Lanka to the question of debt as well, because Sri Lanka has also defaulted on its external debt. And there's a very, very important connection between these commodity prices, commodity dependency, and external debt that, that, that lead to this particularly gruesome uh, and difficult um, connection uh, situations, in, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So I've already mentioned the term commodity dependency. What this mainly means is that a country is commodity dependent if it relies upon one or two agricultural commodities to earn the majority of its uh, foreign exchange. Okay, so, so one would think maybe high commodity prices would translate to higher incomes in these countries, but actually they don't. And that's because of the nature of these global supply chains. So if I go back and, and, and look, uh, I've mentioned already the global value chains and the concentration of market power, particularly in terms of international trading companies. And in my own research on coffee and cotton markets, you see that price falls are passed on to suppliers much more readily than price increases. So we don't really see the same transmission of price increases. But more than that, there's a, a pro-cyclicality between commodity prices and debt in these economies. So since the debt forgiveness that happened uh, in relation to the Jubilee 2000 campaign, low-income countries in the global south have seen dramatic increases in their external indebtedness. And this is related to the availability of new types of credit inflows, which have been very much part of the sustainable development goals that are centered around finance and you know, accessing finance for development. And the structure of these creditors have changed dramatically. And in particular, private creditors, including our old friends, the asset management companies, have become highly significant as creditors um, to low-income countries as these countries began issuing bonds. And I said, you know, these, these, the commodity prices and external debt are highly pro-cyclical. So when commodity prices are high, commodity-dependent countries can borrow more. Um, and as they are able to serve their debt from this foreign exchange earnings better. When prices fall, debt service uh, risks rise. And this is what happened in the late 1970s. We had uh, across sub-Saharan Africa in particular, but across the whole of the developing world and commodity-dependent uh, economies. We had relatively high prices for commodities, increasing indebtedness, and then a sharp fall, particularly with the OPEC, following a sharp increase in uh, fuel prices with the OPEC um, and price spikes, and, uh, and a sharp fall in agricultural commodity prices soon after that, that really crippled these economies and led them to default on debts. And this, this re the response of the IMF in this case was to bail out these economies, deal with the balance of payments crises, 
but also forcing extremely stringent conditions and intense and crippling austerity onto these countries that produced a so-called lost decade of development. We're seeing something very similar to that today. So something like 60% of low and middle income nations are in debt distress. Um, the IMF did set up a debt service suspension initiative uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's been highly in inadequate. If people are interested in finding out more about this, my excellent colleague, Christine Lascaridis, has done some really, really great work on looking at what's been happening with this debt. Um, but also, she's also been cri very critical of the IMF surcharges that have been placed on countries that have delayed on debt repayments. And, uh, and, and this, is, this is an extreme situation where I think we've got to a point where a number of these countries that are facing debt risk but also hunger are forced now to choose between repaying debts and importing food. And, and I think, you know, the, we've seen Sri Lanka defaulting on its debt last week, but I think you know, this is just the beginning as more and more countries are going to lead to that. So what do we do about this? I don't know. <laughs> but the first thing to note is, I think, I'm sorry if this has been a bit all over the shop. But I, what I really wanted to do was just to add a sort of international dimension to this cost, uh, this, this, this uh, cost of living crisis and discuss the price of commodities as underpinning inflation, as well as the sort of restructure of the global economy, particularly around financialization and financialized accumulation and the role of asset price inflation and asset, and, and asset management firms as well at playing in this. And, and I wanted to also draw the, the, you know, the, the point that, make the point that this is a global issue that really requires a global response. And I think some colleagues earlier in the sessions, in the macroeconomy session, uh, macroeconomic session, for example, did point to the need for all macro policy to also think about its implications for the wider global economy. And um, so we don't want a beggar thy neighbor type of policy, but we need a macroeconomic policy or policy around prices that's really about cooperation and the cooperation around, um, uh, you know, the, uh, a sort of response that centers equity and deals with this global interconnectedness, right? Um, and this will require some sort of supply-side coordination so that it meets the needs and redresses these power imbalances between suppliers and global buyers along these global value chains. Some examples of these exist in the past, such as marketing boards or some sort of regional coordination. So Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, for example, are currently discussing, you know, uh, working together uh, in the stabilization of cocoa prices. We might see similar regional things there, but it's really a, a matter of uh, coordination, cooperation, but very much at the center of this is the need to unravel this, this very concentrated uh, set of uh, power networks, which are centered not only on the market concentration of, of trading corporations, but on their connections with these very, very large um, um, uh, asset management firms. James Meadway is the director of the Progressive Economy Forum. He was formerly an economist advisor to the Shadow Chancellor and was chief economist at the New Economics Foundation. Yeah, thank you, everyone. That, that was a, so basically we've had two bits. One, one sort of the, the politics, the global politics, and one's the global economics of it. I'm going to drag it back to um, sort of grubby uh, domestic politics uh, and talk a bit about Boris Johnson because. Um, that's what people like to do on warm summer's day uh, <laughs> in, in, late, in like, uh, sunless lecture theatres. Um, and, and Boris Johnson picking up last week, because he's, sort of, he's, he's a desperate man, um, and picking up last week on why 
he in particular and his government in general couldn't really do very much about the, um, the cost of living crisis and why also no one should really do very much about the cost of living crisis because there might be a wage price spiral as he described it. And he actually gave quite a good potted description of it, which was that, you know, people ask for higher uh, wages. This will force companies to put up prices. Uh, then people ask more wages. Then companies will put up prices again. And then the only way out of this is to do something that, that you know, students of economic history will, will know about as the, the Volcker shock in, in America in the early 1980s, that um, Robert Volcker dis- uh, was appointed head of the Federal Reserve Uh, early on in the Reagan administration and to cope with rising inflation uh, coming out of the late 1970s into the early 1980s jammed up the Federal Reserve's interest rates to to an exceptionally high level uh, to basically sort of force inflation out of the system by um, effectively just crashing demand. So in other words, you make interest rates so high, you make money so expensive to get hold of, you make it so difficult to borrow that people don't borrow, they don't spend so much. Companies in particular don't, uh, don't spend so much, don't invest so much. The dollar, the value of your dollar, because everybody with money elsewhere in the world sees they can get more interest rates by piling into dollars and borrowing and uh, lending, rather, in, in US dollars. So the dollar shoots up in value, so your exporters don't sell, sell as much. So basically, you engineer a recession in order to try and drive out inflation. That's the theory here. And you find people like Larry Summers uh, or Olivier Blanchard, I think, was, was the most recent person to suggest that inflation now is so bad um, that we won't, may not have much choice but to do uh, a really sort of radical monetary policy, that, that we have central banks that are supposed to deal with inflation, uh, that, we, uh, that whatever they're doing tinkering with interest rates isn't really working. Uh, and so therefore they have to jam interest rates uh, very high, very rapidly, squeeze as hard as they can on uh, the amount of money available in the economy, push economies into recession, crash demand, and then when the dust settles, you've got rid of inflation. This is, this is the theory uh, uh, behind the whole thing. If you want to get really carried away, there's a, there's a paper that, that some of you might have been had to read. It's actually quite a, it's quite a fun little paper in its way by Thomas Sargent called The End of Four, Bigs, Four Big Inflations, where he looks at four hyperinflationary episodes in the 1920s, 1930s, and interwar Europe, particularly in Central Europe, so Poland, Hungary, a couple other places. And these, these, these are places with, you know, never mind inflation, we have today, it's high, and I'll come back on to just what, what that sort of means. But uh, these are places with hyperinflation, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100%, you know, up into the stratosphere. And the way that Sargent argues that these inflations were ended is that you've gone beyond simply having to have a, a monetary solution to... Uh, the crisis of hyperinflation, you need a political solution. The political solution is you uh, destroy independent trade unions and you get rid of democracy, right? So the solution, the ends of four big inflations in the uh, post-war, interwar period in Central and Eastern Europe is that you have to break up the institutions of democracy, trade unions, independent political parties, impose uh, a dictatorship in various different forms, and that's how you drive inflation out of the system. There's a line of thinking here which says that once inflation is embedded, once it's very high, and because we view it, because we have all read our our Milton Friedman, we think that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, because we all believe this, we can tinker it with interest rates. If that doesn't work, you have to really push interest rates. If that doesn't work, you have to find something even more out there to to end it. Uh, Pinochet does something similar, allegedly, in in Chile. These are are various solutions you get to, to the problem of inflation. None of them 
make much sense for the inflation. They barely make much sense in a kind of, if you care about democracy and this sort of thing. Uh, they barely make much sense historically. In particular, versions of why do we have inflation now? Oh, it's because of monetary factors uh, don't work very well. That if you have a story about inflation that says something like, well, it's because we're, there's too much money. And because there's too much money out there, uh, people have too much money, they're trying to spend too much of it, and that's driving up prices. Now, simple common sense, daily observation, just knowing a few people or even being a person yourself will tell you that the problem at the minute is not that there is too much money out there. The problem almost certainly is you don't have enough money because prices are too high. It is not that you've gone off and won this fantastic pay increase so your boss has had to whack up the price of whatever it is that you're making that the company sells, thus forcing you to go and demand in your mighty trade union that you're no doubt a member of even higher pay increases and so on until you end up in some inflationary spiral and have to invite Margaret Thatcher to be prime minister or whatever the fantasy version of this is. It's absolutely not like this at all. That's a story that doesn't work particularly well in the 70s. We can come back on to why. But it's a story that really doesn't work well now because the key element here is that where are the wages? Prices are going up. I mean, that's perfectly obvious. But wages are absolutely nowhere to be seen. And wages are nowhere to be seen in this country as across most of the developed world, but in particular in this country for the last decade. The real wages, in other words, the value of wages and salaries that people have been paid, uh, once you take account of inflation, even at the very low rates of inflation we had for the last sort of 10 years or so, uh, have, they've not been keeping pace. So in other words, people have been getting, in real terms, either somewhat poor or basically seeing no real difference. Their purchasing power is not altered at all in about those 10 years. By the way, this is sort of historically unprecedented. There's quite a lot. I find myself saying this a lot. Oh, this is historically unprecedented what's happening. Oh, it's not happened since the, the 1950s or whatever. It's that period of decline or stagnation in real wages in this country is something that we really haven't seen for probably going back to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, a useful reference point that I'll, I'll come back to. So wages are nowhere to be seen. The entire institutional structure that a wage price spiral story is meant to deal with, which involves primarily saying there is too much money, it is in particular in the hands of people who work and who spend that money because they have powerful trade unions, no part of this is working. And as I think Susan has touched on uh, in particular, that the driver's inflation now are not emerging because of domestic issues. They're not emerging because people in this country are going out uh, and asking for too much pay. You're not getting more inflation here because we've accidentally gone and paid you know, people who work in Tesco's or whatever it is uh, uh, too much. That isn't where this is coming from. Inflation we're experiencing today is almost entirely uh, due to imported factors. Now, that is shifting a bit and there's a discussion to be had about how the inflation that was originally very, very clearly from things like a rising price of natural gas or the rising price of food or the rising price of oil. It's somewhat starting to spread and broaden. But I think the key part of this story is that if you have, and most mainstream economists will have, which is why they come out and they insist on coming out with this sort of thing, a story which says there is too much money, it is going into too many workers' hands because they're asking for too much money, this is forcing up prices, almost no part of this works. And what's really bizarre What's really peculiar about it is if you find some of the more honest characters out there, in this case, Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, who, who just a few months ago did a whole speech that basically says, 
Look, inflation today is coming from these big international factors. It's coming because uh, there's a rise in the price of natural gas. Uh, There's energy costs going up, food's going up. Um, If we try and fiddle with interest rates, there's not much you can do about it. And of course, he's completely right. There is no interest rate we can find in London that will stop the war in Ukraine. There's, There's no wage we can cut in this country that will make the, the price of uh, grain on the world market also drop. You can't pay teachers less, you can't pay doctors less, you can't pay anybody less here and suddenly find that you've managed to end uh, floods in Brazil and bring the price of coffee down. The problem here is we're running now hard into not simply a kind of monetary crisis around inflation, but an ecological crisis. And the ecological crisis appears in many different ways, of which the most dramatic really was COVID, and the after effects of COVID and potentially further effects of COVID uh, uh, down the line. That's one part of it. The disruption to the food system globally, as you find this again and again and again, you get reports of droughts, uh, of fires, of extreme weather events right across the world, is imposing real restrictions on the production of some basic commodities, which is not just food, by the way. I mean, the one that was really striking in the middle of this semiconductor shortage, mostly that is determined by what happened with COVID. Uh, mostly it's determined by what happened with COVID. But then on top of that, you find that in Taiwan, there has been a, a drought in the last year. Uh, a colossal number of the world's semiconductor chips are, are produced in Taiwan. This requires a huge amount of water. If there's a drought, you can't produce so many chips. And suddenly a, you add to the shortage. So the ecological crisis intrudes at every single point on the way. We do not have an economics as a kind of mainstream version of how economics is conducted that can really handle any of that. The underlying assumption of pretty much any mainstream macroeconomic model is that you have a shock and at some point in the future, sooner or later, you'll return to the kind of norm, you'll return to the average. There is a trend rate of growth, you have a shock and you come back to it. And this applies to every sort of major part of the model and the forecast that you're trying to produce. The official forecast works like this, the Office of Budget Responsibility. If you look at their forecast, they say, okay, big inflationary shock this year. By next year, we're around about back to 2% inflation and so on into the future. They're not models designed to deal with a world where you have continual ecological shocks, where the foundations and structures of the economy you're trying to run are being continually upset. But all the environmental modeling will tell you very clearly and insistently for a long period of time that all of these extreme weather events are getting worse, that we're having more uh, disease crossovers, that there is an increased shortage of some basic commodities, that it's harder to grow crops in some parts of the world. All of these things are actually determining what we see happening in the real world and the economic models lag behind. So you get a wage price spiral story. So you get the idea that you can jam up interest rates and start to deal with this. So what do we do about this instead? And and here I'll, I'll come on to the I'll come on to the graph and and what I think part of the solution uh, looks like. Because what the wage price spiral story does alert you to is what are the two elements of the cost of living crisis. And one of them is wages and the other is prices. And it boils down to wages being too low and prices being too high. Now, at the risk of reducing things slightly, your solution to this is to have higher wages and lower prices. And the way you can make that happen is, first of all, The argument around not supplying uh, more money to people for their pay. Now, when I say wages, I'm using this as a bit of shorthand. Let's say wages, salaries, 
pensions, benefits, the amount of money people have that they receive in the form of income, which they can then go off and spend. The argument around not doing that tends towards something like, well, if we give them more, they'll bid up prices. There isn't actually that much stuff out for, their, for people to spend. The argument I want to get into instead is that actually we need to think of this as a redistribution problem. Yes, the world is subject to shocks. Yes, lots of things are in shorter supply. No, that doesn't mean that all of us have to get poorer and poorer because what you see happening on the other side of these shocks is exactly as Susan touched on, which is massive speculation and really extraordinary profits being built on the back of this uh, chaotic system. Those profits are appearing in particular parts of the economy where there is very large companies that are able to exercise market power. That exercise market power works in terms of what they sell. It doesn't work in terms of how much they're going to pay anyone uh, on the other side of it. So you find, and, and Carson Young, who was speaking earlier from IPPR, uh, they've got some research out later uh, next week, which shows that what, 91% of uh, uh, profits in the last few years were made by the top 25 companies in Britain. The profits recovered extraordinarily uh, since the, the last lockdown, but wages very clearly have not. So instead of saying, well, we can't pay people anymore, and you get the other part of this argument, this is Rishi Sunak's argument, we can't pay people more because we don't have enough productivity. Productivity growth is going nowhere. Well, we've had you know, 10 years or so of really, really weak productivity growth. If you're saying to people, you can't have a pay rise until it picks up, it may never really pick up. We don't know that. So you have to say, pay people more now. Higher minimum wage is one way of doing that. More aggressive. To be blunt, trade unions is a way of doing that. If we had more people in trade unions, uh, private sector unionisation in Britain is about 12% of the workforce now. If we had more people in trade unions, better organised, able to go on strike if they had to, able to uh, at least bargain collectively for pay rises, you could start to also push that share back up. You could also start to ask for the kind of uh, inflation-beating pay rises that people should be getting. And they should be getting... This is period of decline. And I say should because we want to compensate for the period of decline, not so they say, okay, we've had decline and now it has to get worse uh, as a result. So you want to shift the terms of, of the bargaining uh, that people have. I think it will take a long time to rebuild trade unions. It might not, it might happen very rapidly, but it will take a long time to rebuild trade unions, so better to have a very high minimum wage uh, straight away. The other part of it is prices, which is... One of those arguments that, that, that if you start talking about things like price controls, you'll notice that there's a whole bunch of people who go absolutely do lally about this. Uh, that, that you'll find, if you say it on Twitter, you'll find, find all sorts of people from like the Adam Smith Institute or the Institute of Economic Affairs jumping up and down and getting very excited and talking about Venezuela in the 1970s and this sort of thing. I think one of the things we now have to crack open is an argument about the need not to say, okay, every price in the, in the whole economy should be controlled by government, because there's no real reason to do that, and there's no good reason to expect government to be able to do that. But at the very least, to be able to say that a few key prices, a few key goods, should be regulated in some form, right? For example, like we already do with the price of domestic energy. We do a bit, and what we've ended up with is because it's a compromise position that the Tories were forced to introduce in 2018, the energy price cap is actually not very effective, and it creates this sort of weird political thing uh, every six months or so, where Ofgem, who decides they need to protect the privatised industry rather than protect households, decides to put the price cap on. There are much more rigorous versions of this in France, in Portugal, in Norway. You can do much more to control that. We're probably increasingly going to start seeing an argument 
around the need to control some basic uh, food prices, although we're not there yet. And historically in Britain, this is not something that, that's particularly emerged. But you can certainly see the case on key goods, where it's an essential, where it's part of somebody's budget that occupies a major part of it. You can't avoid paying for it. There's an overwhelming case for controls and regulation of those prices, rent controls. Really, really obvious one uh, in terms of the essentials that you can do this to. Now, the bit to finish up, and the bit to put this in context, is to talk again about your side of this graph. If that share going to people who work is falling, somebody else is getting more of the pie. That means profits are rising. And if you think about it, there's a logic to this. If most people's wages aren't actually going up at all, or barely, in money terms, but most things they're buying are going up in price, somebody else is taking that money. If your wages were going up faster than the rising prices, you'd be doing better. As it is, somebody else is doing better. And that's why profits are recovered. There's a key part of the crisis now, which is about the power especially of very large businesses to be able to control and determine prices in a situation of increasing ecological and political instability, to be able to impose themselves on that situation and squeeze out more profits. And all of us suffer because of that, because it means we just end up paying more for essentials in particular. Brilliant bit of research from Oxfam looking at what happened during the pandemic. It's a very extreme version of this. Extraordinary increase in the wealth held by the very wealthiest. Massive increase in the number of billionaires globally, uh, in particular in food, tech, and pharmaceuticals and energy, the main sectors that people couldn't avoid spending money on, that's where you see the biggest increase in the concentration of wealth. That is an indicator of market power. That is not an indicator of a healthy functioning textbook-style capitalist system. It's something much worse that you've got emerging. So if you want to deal with the cost of living crisis right now, the real target has to be saying, here are the profits, we're going to shrink those, and we're going to take some of that value and resources and give it to the people who work. That's your first step on the way to resolving the thing. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this recording from Progressive Economics 2022, a festival for the future of economics. For more information on our upcoming events and to keep up to date with our latest research, visit progressiveeconomyforum.com.